Well, good evening, everybody. We're glad to be able to gather together and um, learn some more from the Baptist Catechism that we've been working through. And this uh, catechism is really just a tool for us to grow in our discipleship and understanding of the things that we believe. And the, uh, the questions and the answers that are derived um, from Scripture are meant to be uh, in a, a way that we can become more equipped as the soldiers in God's army, as the sons of the King, to minister to others and to worship our God better, to appreciate Him more, to be able to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And so uh, we're thankful that you've come tonight to continue to learn and to pray together. We're thankful for that time. And, and we pray that these requests that were lifted up today and the praises that we mentioned, you take them home with you and that you continue to pray with them uh, throughout the week for these things uh, so that the, the things that our church is going through would, would be constantly bathed in prayer. So having just wrapped up our examination of the Ten Commandments through the Baptist Catechism, that moral skeleton of the law of God, the Baptist Catechism is very careful to differentiate between the law and the gospel. It might be um, somewhat easy to hear law, law, law for so many weeks and then to get the misconception uh, that the law is something that saves us when in reality the opposite is true. There is much that the law does for us. There is much importance to understanding the law but we need to be able to differentiate as Christians the difference between the gospel of grace that saves us and the law uh, in which we stand. And so while the law serves a very important purpose in the kingdom of God, it was never meant to be a ladder that we would climb rung by rung to ascend to our Savior and acquire a place in heaven with Him. We are helped to that conclusion by question 87, which we're going to study tonight, which reminds us that no man with the exception of Jesus Christ himself, is able to perfectly keep the commandments of God. So again, I apologize in advance for missing the slides. I'm not very good at keeping up with my own slides, but I'll do my best tonight. Question 87 asks, is any man able to perfectly keep the commandments of God? So before we read the answer, anybody want to raise their hand and say, they've been able to accomplish this? Anybody here? Perfect? Okay, we got one. Thanks, Elena. Good job. Uh, I guess I got to go rethink everything that I prepared for tonight. Uh, in reality, I think the answer to that question is largely obvious to us. But let's read together again this answer uh, that hopefully will be encouragement to our hearts. No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but does daily break them in thought, word, or deed. It has been said that only two things in life are guaranteed. Can you name them? Death and taxes. And having just wrapped up the tax season, even if death might seem a far-off concept to you, you can no doubt say amen to the idea that there is no escaping taxes, right? If you don't pay income tax, then the government will get you on property tax. If you don't pay property tax, they're going to get you on sales tax. There's really no way around it. And it's not a modern condition or one that's isolated just to the United States. Every form of government is going to take their cut. So death and taxes, two kind of guarantees in life. But even a casual reading of God's word would cause us to expand that bare minimum to three. In life, only three things are guaranteed. Death, taxes, and sin. We know that if we are alive, we are going to fail the commands of God. No human being... No matter how hard they try, no matter how vigilant or wise they are, no matter how cautious they approach life, no human being is able to keep the law of God without fail. 
God's scripture makes this abundantly clear to us. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. These are the words of Solomon who was himself gifted with supernatural wisdom. He was wiser than any man on the earth at that time. And Solomon doesn't frame this in the form of a question when he makes this declaration about the heart and the soul condition of human beings. Is there a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins? He doesn't ask that. Instead, he declares it as a plain fact and emphasizes his confidence in what he says. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So this reality is not a mystery. It is not a a maybe. The proof abounds. Everywhere we look, even the best examples of humanity are flawed and breaking the law of God on a regular basis. While sin is a universal human condition today, this was not always the case. And so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up with me to Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26 is where we're going to start. So go ahead and grab your scriptures if you've got them. I'll give you a second to get there. Genesis chapter 1 shouldn't be too hard to find though. It is right smack in the beginning of your Bibles. I'm going to read verses 26 through 31 for us tonight. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So we see in this picture of the creation of God, we see that Adam and Eve were both created in the image of God. That doesn't mean they were gods themselves, but it mean, means that they were built in a way that, that gave them an honor that the rest of creation did not bear. They were bear, uh, built to reflect the glory and the goodness of God. And they were both created to do that without sin. They were created in such a way that when God looked upon what he had made, he considered it very, very good. Not only were they without sin, they were created without a propensity towards sin. So they didn't have an inclination to break the law of God. Now, they were not perfect in the way that God is perfect. But they were totally undefiled and had accumulated no sin debt to their creator. Nor had any corruption doomed them to do so. Their relationship with God was not hindered uh, by a broken heart, though it was limited by man's ability to comprehend Though there was no wrath upon Adam and Eve, the potential for falling was there. And it was warned about through the covenant that God cut with Adam and Eve regarding the trees in the garden and regarding their responsibilities. So this sinless state of happy dependence and trust in the Lord 
was almost an idyllic human existence. We do not know how long this idealism lasted, but we do know that as long as it did, the relationship that God had with man was healthy. It was close. It was uninterrupted. And it was beautiful. I described Eden a second ago as almost idyllic. The church father, Augustine, helps us to explain why it is not quite the idyllic condition. In his writing in Chiridion, chapter 118, he talks about four different states of man's sinfulness or potential to sin. And I think this has been mentioned somewhat in the past, but it was long enough ago that we're going to look at it again today because it's very pertinent to what we're going through tonight. In the garden, and in his original state, man was able to sin. So I've got this on the screen here. And he was able not to sin. So put before him was the option to obey or to not obey the command of God. And we do read in that first chapter or that second chapter that the command of God was not overbearing upon Adam and Eve. They had been given so much goodness and grace. They had all that they needed to survive. All they needed to do was respect God's command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Having never sinned, there was no sin debt to pay to God. No offense had been committed, so peace reigned. But that reign was not secure. Man had the freedom to commit error if he so choose. And sadly, he does exercise that liberty. We know if we continue to read into chapter 3 that there is a tempter who enters into the garden. Eve is initially enticed by his suggestions. She eats of the fruit, and rather than guard his wife, Adam falls for the same trap, and he eats of the fruit as well, and mankind is condemned into sin. So the second state of man, the first state is that man was able to sin, and he was able not to sin. After the fall, man was able to sin, but he was unable not to sin. From that point forward, there was a condemnation upon his heart that every action that he did was done under the dark cloud of rebellion against his creator. This is the state of most men today in the world. And this is the lowest possible point in the history of man's interaction with God. Man's rebellion shattered the peace that existed between him and his maker. Fellowship was not able to continue unhindered as it had before because their offense to God made them enemies to him. Now, some might push back against the idea that fallen man can only ever sin. They might say, well, well, some people can do good things even though they are lost from God. But to respond to that, I would share with them from Isaiah 64, uh, verse 6. The prophet Isaiah says, We have all become like one who is unclean in all our righteous deeds. Note the totality of that statement. All our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. If you're reading in the New King James or the Old King James Version, you might remember that, that phraseology of all of our good deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. So if Isaiah the prophet is speaking truthfully here, and I, I, I charge you with the fact that he is, then nothing that a sinner who is rebellious to God, nothing they can do carries any merit or goodness before God. Even the things that we do which appear to be good 
are motivated not by our desire for God to be glorified if we are apart from Christ, but they are motivated only for our own personal good or the good of those who favor, which is ultimately for our own personal good. John 15, 5, the words of Jesus as he was engaged in his earthly ministry here confirms this. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He's speaking to his disciples here. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if we are not in Christ, then every effort we make to do a good thing accounts to nothing in the eyes of God. Our good deeds are like the filthy rags that are to be thrown away and and that are to disgust God instead of some kind of meritorious work that would make Him like us or have favor upon us. So when man sins, he falls into this condition where he cannot do good and he can only do bad. Now, thank the Lord, we're going to be talking about the grace of Christ tonight as well. Though we will spend a lot of time talking about man's failure, we also get to rejoice this evening in the victory of of Christ over sin. While we all fail to keep the commandments of God, there is one who doesn't. And those who trust in that Jesus enter into a, a new state of being. Upon salvation, man remains able to sin, but is also able not to sin. Whereas before, in our rebellious state, without our sins paid for by Christ, all we could ever do was be a stench in God's nostrils. Once we have the blood of Jesus washing our sins away, now, though we might still stumble and fall, and all Christians do, we are also made able to do what is righteous and good before the Lord God. Now, don't miss the blessing of this change. To be able not to sin is a tremendous leap beyond where we were before. And it is an undeniable gift of grace that God has given to us. One of our greatest griefs is that um, though though we are redeemed, we are still able to sin. We still break the law of God from time to time. This no doubt leads to some inevitable hypocrisy in the life of Christians, right? We want to be a holy people. We want to represent our God well, and yet we are unable to keep the law of God perfectly, even though He has shined His grace upon us. But praise be to Jesus, when saved, man does sin, but his sin is no longer counted against him. His sin is punished on the shoulders of his Savior, Jesus Christ. So when we fail as Christians, we don't fail into condemnation again. We don't dig ourselves a new hole that we've got to find a way to dig ourselves out of. Instead, our sin has been preemptively charged to Jesus and His suffering on the cross has already satisfied God's wrath when it comes to those failures. Some have... Let's look at the fourth condition here. Upon death, every believer will enter into his final state. Once glorified from this life, once removed from this flesh of sin and given a new flesh that will be suited for eternity, man will become able not to sin, but then he will become unable to sin. We will retain our ability not to offend God, though this ability will be radically enhanced because in glory, one of our freedoms are going to be stripped away from us. Our most vile freedom, the freedom that causes us the most grief, the freedom to break the law of God will be removed. It will pass away like the grass of the field. And what will remain will be a person who can only ever do 
what God desires and intends for him to do. And those people who go on to glory, those Christians who have been saved by the the grace of Jesus Christ, will be ever content from that day forward to do exactly what God wants them to do. Can you see how this final state is actually superior to the first state? It is actually an improvement upon the state that Adam and Eve found themselves in in the garden. Because though Adam and Eve had the potential to sin, we as redeemed believers upon our glorification will never be able to sin again. There will be no possibility or opportunity for our covenant with God to be defiled once that is accomplished. Hence the possibility of seeing the fall of man as essentially a fortunate event. God has brought man as a whole to a better place than he was before. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Some have summarized salvation as God's determined effort to get us back to the state that we were in the garden. But I think that falls somewhat short of God's true plan. Salvation secures for us a promise of a tomorrow even better than our yesterday was. Upon glorification, we will have been granted a far more secure standing with our God, unhindered fellowship, completely uncorruptible by some outside source, and this life is eternal. It will last forever. But man is not there yet, friends. Once Adam and Eve broke the law of God, their very standing in the universe changed. They were now violators of the holy decree of the Savior and represented a threat to the harmony and the peace of what God had established in the creation. We may be tempted to think of first man and first woman's sin as something of a small thing, hardly even an infraction. No one was murdered in the eating of that fruit. No one was injured. Adam and Eve simply ate something they weren't supposed to eat, or at least it seems so at first glance. But in violating the laws of God, man turned his heart away from the one who provided for him goodness, grace, and peace. And so murder was committed in that act because where death did not exist, death now reigns. The act of committing treason against God and breaking His command meant that we and our relationship with the One who gives us life are now estranged from the One who made us. But the fact that law-breaking is a challenge to the God upon whom all things rely makes a sin of any magnitude a sin worthy of divine wrath. When you consider the, the magnitude of sinning against the God of creation, you can realize that even the smallest of infractions against God is an incredibly big thing. When I was young, um, we were on the poor side, so we were not able to always pay our bills. And I remember distinctly several times when the power would get shut off because we couldn't afford to pay PG&E their due. Sometimes for almost a week at a time, we would go without any electricity before we could drum up the money to pay the bill and get the electricity flowing again. For us, that was not tremendously a huge deal. We used flashlights. We had to play outside more. We got hotter if it was summertime, but we survived. We lived through it. I remember we had a neighbor who felt bad for us. They would throw an extension cord over the fence so we could just plug in our refrigerator so that all of our food wouldn't spoil. Now imagine how that scenario changes if you are on a life support device and you must completely rely on the power staying on in your home in order to survive. In that situation, if you miss your bill, you aren't worried about the stuff in the fridge spoiling. If the power goes out, your iron lung grinds to a halt, and so does your very life, because your being depends upon that power. 
sinner, you have offended the very one upon whom you depend every moment in your life to keep breath in your lungs. Every aspect of your existence and health rests on the goodwill of God towards you. And a violation of the smallest of his commands renders you a rebel to his rule. He has every right to cut you off from his life-supporting power if you violate even the smallest of his commands. Does that put sin into perspective for us a little better, friends? Now, I want to spend a minute talking about James 2 here. But we won't go into too much detail because Brother Taylor is going to be preaching next Sunday evening. He's going to be talking about whether all the sins that a man could commit are equally heinous. And I have no doubt he's going to make use of this passage. But I do want to read it and just say a couple of words about how it pertains to question 87 tonight. And so James chapter 2 verses 10 through 11 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So what James tells us here is that there's really only two states that man can be in. You're either a lawbreaker or you keep the law perfectly. The law is an all-in, an all-or-nothing proposition. Since law has one source, it all comes from the maker of all things, from the governor of truth, from God himself. A violation of any aspect of the law is an attack on the entirety of the law. So, human beings, having all sinned, are all looking at the wrath of God. We have all earned a divine punishment For our sin, no matter how big or small our rap sheet seems to be compared to other human beings around us. How sinless can we be, friends? Even as saved people, even for those who have trusted in the saving work of Jesus Christ, how completely free of sin can we hope to be? For this, we look to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse, eight, or verse 4, says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let, us, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so here we're given this insight from John, the beloved disciple, into this idea of practicing sin. Jesus warns us that those who have been redeemed by God do not just say, thank you, Lord, for salvation. I'm so glad I don't have to be punished in hell and then run right back to their sin to continue to practice it without guilt, without shame, without reservation, and without repentance. Those who practice sin are those who continually walk in a sinful way without guilt or shame, without a, a tugging at their heart by the Holy Spirit. Jesus appeared in order to destroy the sinful works of the devil, not just to get you out of hell and then to simply leave you in your sin. 
No, sin and death must be defeated. And so God assures us that if we belong to him, there will be a change in us. Will we become perfect and free from sin? The scriptures also showed us today that no, that's, that's not possible in this life. There will be a time in our glorification when sinfulness will stop for us. But here in, 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 in this life, we are destined for a battle against sin. So let us consider the scope of our depravity, friends. Do babies sin? The answer to this is yes. Psalm 31, 3-5, written by the, uh, the King David, says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. He's responding in heart to his committing of adultery with Bathsheba, with the uh, illegitimate son that was born through that union, and through his deception which caused the death of Uriah, the true husband to Bathsheba. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, says David, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Bathsheba was not the only mark on David's record. It's the one we talk about the most, right? But David was a sinner when he was anointed to be king. David was a sinner when he was a young lad throwing stones at Goliath. David was a sinner when he was in the womb of his mother. Think about that. A human being not even able to breathe or sustain himself yet is already guilty of iniquity. The scripture declares to us that newness for the human does not exempt one from sin. The curse of Adam is passed on specifically to the seed of Adam. It affects not only Adam and Eve, but the work that God has commanded them to do. What did he command them to do? To exercise fruitfulness and to fill the earth with their kind. Sadly, now they could only fill the earth with their kind, with sinners like themselves. And so every human being that flows from the seed of Adam and Eve has inherited this innate quality whereby they are inclined to sin and rebel against the commands of God. Will all who are born under the curse inevitably commit sins of their own? Yes, they will. And it doesn't take long, friends. If you need a solid object lesson to confirm this, and Sean is looking for some folks to sign up in the nursery right now to serve as helpers on Sunday morning. And you work in the nursery for any length of time and you will see that sin is not something that kids have to learn to do. It's not something that they have to figure out by example. Kids know right away how to hurt and how to take and how to throw a fit to get what they want and how to dishonor. Even the smallest of babies knows how to sin. I, I can give you story after story of my own littlest child, Rosie, and how she will secretly hide markers in her pocket so that when we put her to bed, she'll be able to take them out and draw all over her walls, even just as a little tiny child. Even though she's been explicitly told never to do that, she knows it's wrong, and yet there's something in her that wants to do it. Every human being is like this. It's not just mine, right? Every child has the capacity to sin and will inevitably sin. Our sinful status does not come by what we do. It comes by way of our forerunner, Adam. And what we do will inevitably match what we are born to be. So do babies sin? Absolutely they do. Do Christians sin? 
Yes. Yes, they do, unequivocally. Though the true Christian has been sealed by the Spirit, there are still times when our disobedience to God's law grieves the Holy Spirit that is within us. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does it mean to grieve the Spirit? We grieve the Spirit when we break the laws of God as if we were still a sinner and not a redeemed person who's been washed by the blood of the Lamb. The Christian is no longer a slave to sin. And that is a beautiful reality, one that we can rejoice in. Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So remember, our former state, all we could do was sin. Even the good deeds we tried to do were a mockery to the law of God. But now, having been forgiven having been made new and born again under the grace of Jesus Christ, we are no longer a slave to that sin. We don't have to wake up every day and only sin. We can now do what is honoring to God and do it for noble and good reasons. But he nonetheless must battle against a lingering inclination towards sin. Every one of us, every human being, has got an echo of that sinfulness in us that even if we are redeemed Christians today, we still have a tendency to slide back into the patterns of our old lost life. In many ways, like the, uh, the Israelites who were freed from the Exodus, you remember in the wilderness wandering, they said, oh, that we were slaves again, that we might taste the leeks and the quail that was uh, on our table when we were back serving in Egypt. There was a tendency to slide back into the ugliness of slavery. So Christians have to fight against this tendency to do what we used to be comfortable doing because it is no longer a part of our identity in Christ. It is now foreign and wrong to us. Do the oppressed or the disadvantaged people of the world, do they sin? And this might seem like a strange question to ask, but the way that our society thinks today, there is a movement towards pinning the responsibility for all sin, not on the individual, but on the circumstances that they have had to endure. The scripture leaves no room for that. Just because you were born into bad circumstances, that doesn't mean that the sins you commit can all be heaped upon your mother or father. It doesn't mean that the sins you commit can be heaped upon the brokenness of your culture. Proverbs 6, verses 30 to 31 says, People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. What does that mean? That means that though somebody might be going through a really tough time and that tough time prompted them to break a law to try to relieve the grief that they were going through, we have compassion for them, but their law-breaking is still an offense to God and they are still responsible for it. Deuteronomy 24.16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. And there is no human being who has walked this earth who doesn't have his own sin, with one exception, who we will speak about in just a few moments. But first, let us ask the question, Well, do anointed, Holy Spirit-filled apostles sin? When we try to think about the best of the best of us, those who have seemingly been most obedient to God, who have done tremendously Spirit-empowered things, is there any other category that might have a chance to squeak past as an exception to this rule? 
and yet the apostles themselves were guilty of serious sin. Romans 7, 14 through 15. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. The Apostle Paul, who planted churches with zeal and vigor, who contended for the faith, who preached the truth again and again, who would not stand for heresy and deception in the pulpit. This man who loved the people that he ministered to so much so that he was constantly praying back to them, that he was looking out for the churches that were hurting and making sure that those who had much were were willing and able to give to those who had little. This man who in so many ways is an example to us, who imitated Christ so faithfully that we should in many ways try to imitate him, yet he confesses here himself that he too was a sinner. A saved sinner, but a sinner. 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And I've heard people trying to spare Paul in dignity in this, saying, well, of course he was the chief of sinners because before he was saved, he murdered Christians. Well, that's part of it, but he's not using a past tense verb here. He doesn't say, I was the chief, the foremost of sinners. He says, I am. And he says that because he knows his own heart. He knows it better than you and I do. He knows what he battles against. And perhaps you sitting in the seat where you sit might say, well, I would give Paul a run for his money. I am perhaps the chief of sinners. I know the depravity that that I sit in. I know the depth of my heart. Peter, having promised to remain steadfast to the end, denies his Savior three times through the course of Jesus' darkest day. Later, having been restored to the ministry by the mercy of his Savior, Peter gets caught up in the false teachings of some Jews who traveled from Jerusalem to, to Galatia. And he begins to treat the brothers with disdain who are not from a Jewish background. He has to be openly rebuked by Paul. These are our greatest examples of Christians, and yet they too are struggling with sin like we do. So if you want an exception, don't look to the apostles. Don't look to the prophets of old. You're not going to find an exception among them. But there is one last place that we can look. Does the Messiah, does Jesus, being descended from the line of David, does he commit sin? Here, friends, is the one exception. And it is only so because of divine intervention. 1 John 3, 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Speaking of Jesus. And in Him, there is no sin. Christ has never, to the smallest degree, been defiled by the sin that runs rampant in us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Describing Jesus there, it says that he knew no sin. That doesn't mean that he walked around with his eyes closed and his ears covered and he was just completely ignorant to things. It means that he never knew from experience what it was like to rebel against God the Father because every second of Jesus' life on earth was spent in complete submission to the one who sent him. 
He was utterly faithful to the calls of God. Apart from Christ, there is not a single example of human sinlessness that we can find. This is a very crucial piece of truth for us to embrace. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. While Christ was able to accomplish perfect submission to the Father, none of us can. And we must not fool ourselves into thinking that we are one of the few that could. It is tempting to tell ourselves that we have no sin. It's tempting because sin comes with shame. And who among us wants to feel shame? Sin comes with incredible guilt. Who of us wants to be weighted down by the burden of guilt? And so we are tempted from time to time to try to convince ourselves that we have reached a level where sin doesn't touch us anymore where we don't have to repent because we're doing the things that God has called us to do. Sin is scary to us because it begs for action. Namely, it begs for repentance. And so we, we often want to think, oh, I'm not sinning, I'm, I'm walking in the ways of God because we don't want to come to the Father and plainly say to Him, God, I've done it again. I have broken Your command. I have shamed Your name. I need Your forgiveness for the 10,000th time this week, Right? Sin begs for action. And sin may carry a negative sanction or even a curse upon us, right? When we sin against God, there are consequences that fall from that sin. And so we often will think to ourselves, well, I, I'm not a sinner. I'm not like those people that I see on cops and on the nightly news that are getting shaken down. I'm, I'm not like one of those ingrates. You know, I, I have my hang-ups, but I'm not a sinner like them. We don't want to be sinners. But at the same time, because of our sin nature, we tend to want to sin. It is in our makeup as children of Adam. But let us not fall into this temptation of lying to the world and lying to ourselves, trying to convince our hearts that we are not numbered among those who need to repent. Why is it important for us for the truth to be in us? 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Living as though we are not sinful means that we are trying to convince others and trying to convince our own hearts that we're something we are not. We are walking around as fraudulent individuals, falsely advertising a righteousness that is only found in Christ, that is not native to our hearts. Just recently, a video began to circulate of a lady who was caught posing as an expert in American Sign Language. I don't know if you've seen this. After a series of murders in Seminole Heights, Florida, the police chief of that area called a press conference to update the community on the case's progress. Uh, Daryl Lynn Roberts arrived at the, pre uh, the precinct uh, the precinct thought that she had been sent by the company that normally contracts that work for the department. And as the press conference began and the cameras recorded the police chief's remarks, the woman began to frantically move her hands around in such a way that to the untrained eye, perhaps it looked like she was doing sign language, but she was signing things that meant absolutely nothing. The mother of one of the victims who was murdered happened to be a deaf woman. 
And she was completely left in the dark. She had no idea what was being said as she watched this woman frantically wave her hands around saying nothing at all. This woman was posing to be something she was not. And we look at that and we think, how shameful is that? How selfish is that for that woman to want to be on TV so she would pretend to have a skill that she didn't have so that people would think she was doing a good deed and helping out a disadvantaged community. This is unethical, this is sad, and it is shameful. And it is no different from us trying to convince ourselves that we are free from sin when in reality we still battle against it and are in need of repentance. We should be sad for ourselves when we would rather lie to ourselves than face the difficulties of our own iniquity. The far-reaching impact of sin is not limited to the arena of our actions either. As the answer to question 87 gives to us, the physical manifestations of sin is only the inevitable fruit that we bear when we think sinfully and when we desire that which is sinful. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open it up to Mark chapter 7. We're going to start with verse 14 tonight. I'm going to read a little section here. And we're going to discuss. Starting in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The greatest enemy to humanity is not outside of humanity. Again, Scripture challenges the popular thinking about this in our society uh, where the emphasis is on finding the villain who has caused you to sin and then exacting justice from them rather than searching one's own heart to see what needs to be repented of. The greatest enemy is looking back at us in the mirror. It is our own sinful heart that causes us to continually fall back on repentance and trust the mercies of our Lord. Sinful thought is sin. And so when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is addressing the sin of his disciples, he says, you have heard it said, do not murder. He doesn't negate that. He agrees that that is right. But he takes it further than that. He looks deeper. And he says, but I say to you, that we are not to hate our brothers. We are not to have a hatred within the heart towards them. Matthew 9, 4 says, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, Why do you think evil in your hearts? And so sinfulness is not just something that mankind does. But when we think away from the ways of God, then we're committing sin already in our heads. Sinful thoughts is our sin. So too are sinful desires sin. 
Also in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard it said, Do not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you have lusted after a woman in your heart, if you have had a sinful desire for her, even if you never manifest that desire at all, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, So flee youthful lusts, passions, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So friends, this is not just about what we do. We are humbled tonight to find out that there is corruption in our mind, that we fall short in our heart and in our desires. We are utterly in need of God's grace if we are to display the righteous image of God in any meaningful way. Can you see how the law of God governs not just the external actions, but the internal intentions and desires as well? Can you see how, by that standard, we are all hopelessly sinful apart from the Son of God? Sin kept in the mind or in the heart will not stay in the mind or in the heart. James 1.15 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It didn't stay there for those who hated Jesus, did it? They eventually murdered him. And it won't stay there for us if we give place to it and refuse to put our sin to death through the power of Jesus. So let us not attempt to convince ourselves that we are without sin, friends. Lying to oneself is not only shameful, it ignores the only remedy to sin, which is Christ's help, which comes to us by way of repentance. But there is something more dangerous than lying to ourselves. 1 John 1.10 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make Him, Jesus, a liar, and His word is not in us. Any claim to sinlessness makes God out to be a liar because His word is flush with declarations that man is by default a sinner and universally worthy of God's punishment. To claim that we might be free from sin when God's own words bear testimony against us is to slander the testimony of Almighty God. And so there is a pressing need for every man and woman to acknowledge their sin and to confess their guilt in regards to the law of God and to come to terms with the danger that sin has put him into. Indeed, we have examples of even the most faithful people who sincerely feared God, confessing their sin and crying out for help. Isaiah 6.5 And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And we see example after example of people in the Scripture who do great and mighty things and yet still see that they are guilty of sin. I share those examples because this doctrine of man's inability to purge themselves of sin can, to many, can be like a tremendously heavy weight to them. They hear a sermon like this and they begin to feel crushed. But brothers and sisters, it doesn't have to be a weight to us. This catechism question proclaims the sharp contrast between our disobedience and Christ's sturdy, durable, unwavering faithfulness and righteousness as He walked on earth. Even the most notable saints are flawed and God saved them still. And that's why we don't worship those saints. We don't pray to them. We don't envy them. We have Christ and His perfection has defeated our weakness and is in fact made perfect in our weakness. 
So hate sin, brothers and sisters. Don't let your heart be troubled when you miss the mark despite your best efforts. Jesus never misses the mark. He doesn't grow tired and weary. He never cashed it in and coasted through a day. He is faithful to the end, and our redemption rests upon His shoulders, not on our own. Praise be to God, who never breaks the law. We close with a word of prayer, and then we will transition to a time of questions. If you've got things that came up in our time of teaching tonight that maybe sparked a thought or an idea, maybe there's some clarification that is needed, then we would be happy to open up the floor for those kinds of discussions. But let's have a brief word of prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our one and only victor, who came and faced the same temptations that we face, and yet overcame every one of them in the ways that we failed to do. We praise you, Lord God, for his sparkling purity. We praise you, Lord God, for Jesus' unending faithfulness to the covenant. We thank you that he fulfilled the law under which man had been placed and satisfied your need for justice in punishing our sins upon him, Lord God. You have erased that debt which made made us your enemies. And so we thank you for Christ. And we pray that you would keep us from the deceit of thinking that we should somehow now aim to be that perfect person who never makes a mistake. We, we would love to be that person. We strive to be better. We want to be like Christ. God, but help us to not be deceived. There is one and only one Jesus, and we worship him tonight. It is in him that our hope rests, and we praise you for his victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Christopher, you have your hand up quickly. What is your question? Yes, sir, that is David's psalm of repentance upon uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba. I think we'd be arguing about something that we can't know. So the Bible doesn't tell us plainly whether babies go to heaven or whether babies go, go to hell. If an infant dies in the womb, the only way they're going to get to heaven is if they were elect of God and the grace of God is applied to them. Can that happen, Christopher? If God so willed it, it could happen. Uh, so we don't know. Babies do have a path to salvation. It would have to be through Jesus Christ. Is it possible that those who die in the womb before there is a profession of faith, a repentance that others can see and quantify, is it possible that they are damned? It is possible. God would be no less just if he condemned those babies who are worthy of damnation just as we are. The, the, the problem is that we want as human beings to be comforted. We want to think that those children who seem to be the most innocent of us were spared the wrath of God. And we just don't know. The scripture, I believe, is silent on purpose about these things. And I think we talked about that too. How there would probably be great sin committed by confused human beings if the Lord was to say that babies 
who die before they are born or a child who dies before they can understand the gospel, if they go straight to heaven, some crazy sect would form that would try to kill every baby before they got to the age of accountability because that would ensure their spot in heaven. And so I think the Bible is silent on this issue for a reason. Uh, I, knowing the God that I know, see his grace and his love for little ones and how he called them to himself and was very kind to them and how he called his people to have faith like children have faith. Believe that there's a good chance that those who die in the womb or die before they are old enough to understand, perhaps the Lord is merciful to them and brings them straight to the kingdom. But, but I can't tell you for certain that is the case. Um, I know that we can argue about it a lot, and I've gotten into some long discussions about it. I don't know if it gets us any closer to loving God more, but I, I know that it is something that is quite often discussed. There's a lot of ink spilled on that one. Hmm? There's a lot of ink spilled on that one. Honestly, one of the best things I've ever read on it was uh, a paper that Paul wrote on it. I thought it was really, really thorough. So if uh, you want to kind of do some more research on it, check with Paul. I'm sure he's got a copy of it he can give to you. But uh, that was really helpful to me. I was thinking thinking the um, commentary, if that's why the Bible doesn't say it, that maybe some sect would then think to go ahead and do that. Wouldn't the prohibition to not murder stand in contrast to their desire to do that? What do you mean by that? Like the commandment that you shall not sure murder. Yeah, I would hope that it would, but I'm, I'm just thinking about the crazy irrationality of human beings that, that, that somebody would do that, right? Yeah. I mean, they would think, well, then I will be a hero and I will take murder on my ledger, which God will forgive me for, if I'm assuring this child goes to heaven. And there's I, people who make that argument. And there, there are. It's, yeah, there's people who do make that argument. I've heard people who, yeah, well, they're liberal and they claim to know Christ. I'm doing this baby a favor because they're instantly going to go to heaven. Yeah, I've heard even people, you know, cite the the dark moments in Job's life where he says it would be better if I had never been born, and they think that that's somehow a proclamation that life on earth is so difficult that it is, you know, it is a mercy to spare someone the experience of living in a fallen world. But you know, that's obviously a misappropriation of someone's heartfelt and honest confession of their weakness and depression. One of my Reformed Baptist brothers uh, and I were debating this about a couple of years ago. He had some pretty, uh, uh, like, arguments I'd never heard before. He was talking about how uh, that passage about never seeing the sun and original sin and the reason babies could be elect was because God would cover the original sin, their actual sin, they haven't come out of the womb yet, and that's why it would be better. You know about them not seeing the sun and just how it is different and just stuff that I've never heard before. So I mean, it's good to say yeah, we can say this or that, but we don't really know. Yeah, is is God going to do the right thing? Yeah, and the right thing doesn't always look like what you would expect it to look like. But when you come to trust the Savior, you know that His thoughts are far different than your thoughts, but they're better. And His ways are not like your ways, but they're superior always, then I think that we can march forward trusting that those things are in God's hands and that we will not be disappointed when we see the answer to that question in eternity. Yes, Greg. Okay. I don't know if I should ask this question, but I'm going <laughs> um, <seven. Good. laughs> 
message the other day in Pensacola where the guy said the exact same thing you did about Adam and Eve, basically having a choice in that matter. Um, I don't know if that to be true if Christ was, you know, if he was sentenced already before the foundation of time. Did Adam and Eve really have a choice to not sin? Yeah, that's, it's clearly told to us that the covenant is put in his hands. We don't know the, the workings of God's providence in Adam. Um, but what we read from Scripture plainly is that the choice was put in front of him and he chose to do what was rebellious and sinful. Again, I, I believe in the providence of God in all matters. So that's why I believe that the fall was a fortunate event, that it's going to lead to a more secure and deeper understanding of God's love and grace in our lives and that he works it out to the betterment of his people. Um, there's a lot of different views on whether Adam could have possibly passed the test and what would have happened if he did pass the test. But a lot of that is structured upon speculation. We don't really have any idea how it would have gone for certain. If you would have passed the test, I, I think that you would have be able to say that you would have been able to eat from the tree of life and live forever. Um, hopefully death would not have reigned. Um, but... At the same time, what value is there in speculating about that when we can see that God has allowed it to play out the way that it has, and God's will is good and perfect, and he did make a mistake in allowing the serpent even into the garden in the first place, which is another great discussion to have. Why is God, who is our shepherd and protector, why is he going to allow a tempter into the garden if he knows very well that that could sway the heart of naive and young-minded Adam and Eve? You know, these are... These are tough questions, but ultimately this is the theater of God's grace. He is displaying who he is to us through all of the machinations of history. And so we trust that he did what needed to be done and that there is not a better way for it to have occurred. I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, but maybe it's a good way for me to dodge it. I don't know. It's foolish. It would be foolish to think of God that way, although it is attractive to some people today. That idea that God is a learner and that he adapts is tempting for some people to grab a hold of because a lot of people don't want God to be sovereign. They don't want him to be over their actions. They want to think that God is more like us. That's not the kind of God that we want. We want a God who is better, who is greater, who knows all things. We want a God that determines the future and writes it in stone so that it cannot change. That God is a God who's in control. What's that? I mean, he actually disobeyed. I mean, he gave him a command. He did. He didn't keep it, but that was the decree 
plan of God. This yeah. is decreed from eternal past. It's not like he hypothetically disobeyed. He disobeyed. He yeah, he broke that law. Yeah, the fall was a part of God's plan. I guess that's the yeah. easiest way to understand it. Steven. Yeah, I was just saying, I, I actually think, it, like, like, I agree with what John's saying, because I think it's a, it's a straw man on the sovereignty of God to say that Adam didn't really have a choice. Because right? he actually sinned. You know what I mean? And we can, we can speculate, oh, if he didn't, what about this or that? But the, the fact of the matter is he did. He did fall and eat the food, right? So, you know what I mean? But I think to say he didn't have a choice, I mean, I, I think that's kind of strong. That, that's one of those things where they want, they want to take that and they're like, oh, well, your God makes us a robot. It's like, well, no. I mean, you had a choice. You know what I think? And it's harder when we think of Adam, but, you know, like kind of with Jonathan Edwards and, you know, our our will, we have a free will, but our will is going to go to, you know, our highest information of our desires. You know, and as sinners tend to fall always in sin. It's going to always, not tend to, it's always going to be sin, but... Even as believers, unfortunately, yeah. sometimes it's, yeah. it's... Christ should be our highest desire, but it is not always. Which begs the question, I mean, how sovereign is God over sin? I mean, there's been a lot of ink spilled over that. I mean, I think of uh, Isaiah 63, O Lord, why have you caused us to strengthen your ways that our hearts do not hear? I mean, you know... We need God to do anything good, you know. Yep. The minute we're left to ourselves, we're ruined. That's right. You know, if you make me think of uh, when you're talking about that part about how we put on this front, you know, and we put on a front because we want people to like us. We want people to think highly of us. I think of Proverbs 20 that says, uh, "Each man will proclaim his own goodness." Right? It's like we put on this phony, baloney, got it all together thinking it's what I'm thinking. And it's just so disingenuous. I mean, yeah. sometimes I just get sick of my own self and I'm just like, why am I doing that? I know who I really am. Yeah. I walk around with myself every day. My thoughts, I think my thoughts, myself. Yeah. You know, I know what's in my heart, but yet, why do we do this proclaiming our goodness? was part of our sin. Like, I think one of the brothers was saying, we don't, that's, we don't sin because that's not what makes us sin. We sin because we're sinning, right? And so I think the Lord removes that weight of us trying to have to put on that time. It's better for us to glory in the Lord. It's better for us to to lift up Christ, to say of our unworthiness, and to just admit that because it's, it's the truth. You know, we're called to speak the truth. I think the part that stumbles us is because it's humiliating. How, how depraved we actually are. Oh, it is. It is. You know? It's and hard to not be God, you know, when, when our heart's desire wants what only God can be. Yeah. Uh, we are enviers of the Lord. We covet His authority and power. We covet His purity. And uh, it, when the Lord matures us and grows us, He chisels away at that, that false conception in our hearts that we have that we might be God or be like Him. And, and instead... We should embrace the idea that we are the image bearers of God. And what an honor that is. What a, what a great glory it is to think that God's image is reflected in who we are. And that should be more than enough for us to step back and wonder and awe and say, thank you, God, for making me what I am. I am not what you are, but, but I am something that is wonderful. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made because I bear the image of God. 
And this is not something I deserve or have earned. It's something that God has graciously granted to me. And so we need to learn a sense of contentment and that God has given us a station and we should learn to love him in that station and, and not feel compelled to bust forth into a different strata. You know? Other questions or comments, guys? Christina's washing her hands of me, so um, I think what we will do is we will wrap it up and uh, we'll pray, and then if you'd like to stick around in fellowship for a little while, we, we'd love to give you some time to talk and get to know each other and, uh, and connect, but let's just thank the Lord for what he's teaching us. God, we are but children, Lord, even those who have walked with you for years and years and years have an eternity to continue to learn how deep your love is for us, and so God, give us uh, a wonder for your word. Help us to have a great respect for the things that you have revealed about yourself in it. Help us, Lord God, to not be uh, confused into thinking that our best efforts can ever have us completely unravel the mystery of who you are. You are great and holy, and we have a, a fear and a wonder for you, Lord, because you are not like us. And so we thank you, God, that though you are different and though you are other, you choose not to be far away from the people you've created, but you choose to draw us near to you through the blood of Jesus. And so thank you, God, for that, that way that has been made by you, a way that we could never make for ourselves. And we praise you, Lord, and ask that you give us a heart that glories in what you have made us to be. Help us to be content in it and to rejoice. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.